find your place in your Bible at 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to read verses 17, 18, and 19. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 17, 18, and 19. Verse 17, and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct, uh, conduct yourselves throughout that time or the time of your stay here in fear knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Let's bow our heads together as we begin this morning. Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you for the shed blood of Jesus and Today we've been singing about it. We're going to be thinking about it in this message today. And I pray, Lord, that we will recognize the power in your blood. Thank you for the sacrifice of your son on the cross of Calvary and his willingness to shed his blood on our behalf. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. In a little while, we're going to be observing communion together in the pew rack right in front of, you, in front of you. There are the elements that you will need for that. But every once in a while, I like to stop when we're doing communion and spend an entire service just focused on some aspect of communion. Normally, we have it in just a very short segment of the service. But Today we're going to spend this entire message thinking about communion, especially about the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you look at your Bible and you've been reading through your Bible, you discover that the pages of Scripture are stained by the symbolic and literal references that you find there to the blood of Jesus Christ. From the beginning of the Bible with the shedding of the blood for God to make coats of skin for Adam and Eve to the very last book of the Bible, the blood of Christ is prominent throughout the pages of Scripture. It's truly central to all of the Scripture. Someone has counted that there are at least 43 direct references to the blood of Christ in the New Testament. And because of that, because of the significance of his blood, because of the prominence of his blood throughout Scripture, some of the greatest hymns that have ever been written have been written about the blood of Jesus. Hymns like, Alas, and did my Savior bleed, or Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb, or nothing but the blood, or saved by the blood, or there is a fountain filled with blood, or there is power in the blood, or when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And I know that there are newer songs, contemporary songs that include messages about the blood of Christ. I'm just not as familiar with those as I am those older standard hymns that most of us have grown up singing through the years. What is it that's made the blood of Christ so dear to some and so feared by others? Well, I want to share with you six reasons or six thoughts related to the blood of Christ today. The first is that the blood of Christ is divine blood. The blood of Christ is divine blood. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, if you're keeping notes, there's an interesting little statement that's found there about the birth of Jesus. And it says that Jesus was born the seed of the woman. 
Now, that's a very unusual phrase. Most of the time you would say, the seed of the man. And the only time you find it is in relationship to the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason for that particular statement is because Jesus was not conceived by Joseph, and he was not conceived by some other human, uh, some other human like Joseph. That in fact, what was worked within the womb of Mary was a miracle of God, and the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, and what was conceived in her womb was the very Son of God. And because of the way the conception took place, his blood is unique to any other human being. It functions in his body just like the blood functions in our body, but it didn't have something that all of our blood has. It didn't have the corruption of sin. Every part of our being, every aspect of our being is touched and corrupted by the entrance of sin. But because Jesus was not born of another man, another father like you and me, Jesus didn't have that corruption even in his blood. Dr. D.R. M.R. DeHaan, excuse me, uh, was a medical doctor whom God called to preach. He wrote a book about the blood of Christ, um, the chemistry of the blood. It's an interesting little book. And he postulates a theory about this matter of the divinity of the blood of Jesus. Let me read to you some of his words. Since the life is in the blood, according to the scriptures, and the wages of sin is death, sin affected the blood of Adam. All men have a common origin in Adam. All men are blood relatives of Adam. Their blood carries the sentence of death because of Adam's sin. And for this reason, all men die a common death with no exceptions, he says. Remember, there is death in the blood. So potent was this poison that 6,000 years after, all who are related to Adam by human birth still succumb to that poison of sin, which is carried, and these are his words, in some way in the blood. This very fact that sin affected the blood of man, necessitated the virgin birth of Christ. If he was to be a son of Adam, yet sinless man, God provided a way whereby Jesus could be perfectly human according to the flesh and yet not have the blood of sinful humanity. That was the problem, he says, solved by the virgin birth. Now, I'm not a scientist, and I'm certainly not a medical doctor, and I don't know all of those details of how the blood takes place, but that's one theory as to how the blood of Jesus becomes or is, in fact, divine blood. The reality is, whether this is exactly the way it occurred or whether it occurred in some other way, the blood flowing through the body of Jesus Christ, though functioning like our blood functions in our body, did not possess the corruption of sin as none of the rest of the body of Jesus possessed any corruption of sin. And that's a significant thought. Uh, Larry King is a name that many of you will recognize. Some of the younger people might not. He used to interview very famous people on TV, and he was asked one time if he could have an opportunity to interview anybody across history, who would he want to interview? And he named a, a number of people, but amongst those, one of them was Jesus Christ. And he was asked, well, what would you ask him if you could interview Jesus, what would you ask him? And the reply of Mr. King was, I would like to ask him if he was indeed virgin born, because the answer to that question would define history. And so it has, hasn't it? 
For these past 2,000 years, the virgin birth of Jesus has defined history. It has reminded us every time we celebrate Christmas that Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. He is different than the rest of us in the ways of his divinity. The blood of Christ is divine blood. But I would say, secondly, that the blood of Christ is imperishable blood. I bring you back here to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. He says, you're not redeemed with corruptible things. Corruptible means perishable things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ. And the implication is that the blood of Jesus is imperishable. You weren't redeemed with things that are perishable. You were redeemed by something that's imperishable. A number of years ago, there was a well-known Bible teacher that made this statement. Christ did not and does not do things with blood after death. He does not nor ever has he sprinkled blood on some heavenly mercy seat. He went on to say, the literal blood of Christ ran down into the dirt. Now, I want to be quick to say that I know this particular preacher, and I don't know him personally, but I know who he is, and I've read his writings, and I can tell you firsthand that he's not a heretic. But I think he's wrong on this front. I think on this occasion, he has missed the point of the imperishability of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Think for a minute with me, if you will, that Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament types and symbols. When the high priest would go in behind the curtain into the Holy of Holies, what was he bearing when he went in there? He was always bearing the blood of that sacrificial animal. And he placed some of that blood on that altar that was found there where God would meet with his people and his people would meet with God. And there's every indication for us to believe that when Jesus ascended back to heaven, that Jesus did exactly what the high priest of the Old Testament did, and Jesus fulfilled that in completeness. That's been the perspective of theologians for centuries. Uh, J.A. Bingle, who was a theologian who died in 1752, wrote, The preciousness of that blood excludes all corruption. Its supreme value requires its imperishability. Therefore, he, as the high priest, carried his own blood in separation from his body into the sanctuary. Or you come into the 19th century and you have F.B. Meyer who says, but there is no dread to those who know that God will commune with them from above the mercy seat, which completely meets the case and is sprinkled with blood. Ah, but ah, no blood of goat or calf can, can speak the priceless value of his blood by which we have access into the holiest. Oh, precious blood. It is as fresh and efficacious as ever. Or the Baptist preacher of the 1800s that just about every Baptist preacher quotes, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Listen to his words. When we climb into heaven itself, we shall not have gone beyond the influence of the blood of sprinkling. Nay, we shall see it there more truly present than any other place. What, you say, the blood of Jesus in heaven? Yes. Let those who talk lightly of the precious blood correct their view ere they be guilty of blasphemy. For me, there is nothing worth thinking of or preaching about but this grand theme. The blood of Christ is the life of the gospel. Or the man who traveled with D.L. Moody, the great evangelist, the greatest evangelist probably until 
uh, Billy Graham came along. He said, we, are, we not only have a Savior who died and so made atonement for sin, but also a Savior who arose and carried the blood into the Holy of Holies, God's own presence, and presents it there, and whoever lives and pleads our case. Or in a commentary that I use periodically, even in my studies today, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown these scholars write, his blood was entirely poured out of his body by the various ways in which it was shed, his bloody sweat, the crown of thorns, the scourging, the nails, and after death, the spear. No scripture states it was again put into the Lord's body. At his ascension as our great high priest, he entered the heavenly holiest place, carrying it separately from his body. The blood itself, therefore, continues still in heaven before God, the perpetual ransom price of the eternal covenant. Once for all, Christ sprinkled the blood peculiarly for us at his ascension. It is called the blood of sprinkling on account also of its continued use in heaven. His glorified body does not require meat nor the circulation of his blood. His blood introduced into heaven took away the dragon's right to accuse. Or just one other quote to show you that this has been the tradition of the church. The imperishability of the, of the blood comes from the 20th century, the century in which I was born and lived a, por a portion through from J. Vernon McGee, and you can still hear his distinctive drawl, can't you? He said, I say to you, I say now to you very definitely and dogmatically that I believe his blood is even now in heaven and throughout endless ages. It will be there to remind us of the awful price Christ paid to redeem us. In other words, it didn't just run into the dirt and it was gone. But in some fashion, in some miraculous way, God's preserved those, every divine drop of the blood of Jesus, and Jesus carried it as the high priest would have carried it into the holiest of holies and presented it to his father as the proof of his sacrifice. Turn back just a few pages. It really doesn't matter what individuals or scholars have to say. It matters what the Bible has to say, right? Hebrews chapter 9, listen to what it says beginning in verse 1. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. And a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer in the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priest always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went only once a year, not without blood, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered with which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. But now listen, but Christ... 
In other words, all the former priests that had gone into the Holy of Holies, they had to keep going back again and again and again. But Christ, verse 11, came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having offered eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purity of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? It certainly sounds to me, when I read Hebrews chapter 9, if we were to continue down into verses 22 through 28, that Jesus did exactly what the Old Testament priest had done, only not in that physical temple or tabernacle that was on earth, but the heavenly tabernacle that was in heaven, the imperishability of his blood. In other words, his blood is always there. His blood is always there as a reminder of the sacrifice that he made for us. I would say thirdly that the blood of Christ is innocent blood. Matthew 27 verse 4. You remember Judas had betrayed Christ uh, for 30 pieces of silver. And after Jesus was condemned to die, he began to feel the guilt of what he had done. And in Matthew 27 verse 4, he goes back to give back the money because he had betrayed what were the words innocent blood. This is what we call the impeccability of Christ. Obviously, if his blood is divine, if he is divine, it means every aspect of him was without sin. That's what in the impeccability of Christ is talking about. There is no aspect of Christ that is sinful or has sin as a part. And listen just briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Or Hebrews 4.15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, because Christ also offered, uh, suffered for us. 1 Peter 2.21-22, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps who did no sin. Or in 1 John chapter 3, verse 5, in ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. The impeccability of Christ, it's innocent blood. Truly, Judas betrayed innocent blood. There was nothing about Jesus that was deserving of the condemnation that he, that he received. But the blood of Christ is not only divine blood, an imperishable blood, and innocent blood. The blood of Christ is cleansing blood. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 and Revelation 1, 5. Think about it for a moment. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from what? From all sins. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. One night in a church service, there was a young woman who felt the tug of God in her heart the Lord was convicting her and drawing her to himself, and she responded to God's call, and she accepted Christ as her Savior that evening. The young woman had had a very rough past. She had been involved with drugs and alcohol and prostitution, and she was known all across the city 
But this night, her life was changed dramatically once and for all and forever. As time went on, she became a faithful member of the church, and she was growing quickly in Christ. She became involved in the ministries of the church. She was even teaching young children, and it wasn't long until this faithful young woman caught the eye of the pastor's son, caught the heart of the pastor's son. Their relationship grew, and they got engaged to one another, and there were wedding plans that were being made, but that's when the problem all began. You see, about half the church didn't think that this young woman with this kind of a past was suitable for a pastor's son. And they began to argue amongst themselves and fight amongst themselves about this matter. And so they decided to have a meeting about it. And as the people made their arguments and tensions increased, the meeting got completely out of hand. The young woman became upset and she began to cry as they were accusing her. Her fiancé couldn't take any more. He stood up to speak. And he said, my fiancé's past is not what's on trial here. What you're questioning is the ability of the blood of Jesus to wash away sin. Today, you have put the blood of Jesus on trial. So does it wash away from sin or not? And the answer is what, church? Yes. Yes. It washes away from sin. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. It's divine blood. It's imperishable blood. It's innocent blood. It's cleansing blood. The blood of Jesus is purchasing blood. There's two different passages of Scripture, Acts 20, 28 and Ephesians 1, 7. They both use a word that refers to purchase to purchasing, the power of the blood to purchase. They're two different words, and they emphasize two different aspects. One speaks about paying a price to claim something for yourself. You pay a price to take it to yourself. The other is about paying a price to set something free. And both of those words are used about the blood of Jesus and what he's done for us. The price that Christ paid was the price he paid with his own blood to claim us for himself, and to set us free from the bondage of sin. There's a story about Dr. Paul Brand. He was a medical doctor, a missionary a physician in India. He arrived as an orthopedic surgeon at the Christian Medical College in Valor to walk alongside another surgeon by the name of Dr. Rev, Rev Bretz, who was from Boston. What he learned, what Dr. Brand quickly learned, was that the people of India thought of the blood differently than, than they thought of it. That the blood was something that was precious, and that if you gave your blood, if you were to come be a donor of blood, that in essence you were giving up your life in the process. Dr. Bretz said that there came a time when a young girl came in, she had some kind of lung condition, and she desperately needed surgery. They only had two pints of blood, and they would need three pints. And so they asked the family if they'd be willing to give blood for their daughter. And they talked amongst themselves, and the healthy ones backed up, and they pushed forward an elderly lady that hardly weighed 95 pounds herself. They were afraid about giving their blood. And Dr. Brett lost his patience, and he finally just looked at them and very harshly spoke to them and with pointing his finger and jabbing his finger at them, tried to explain, and finally, 
With a melodramatic flourish, Dr. Bretz rolled up his own sleeve and called Dr. Brand over to take the blood from his own arm. The family watched in awe as that rich red fountain filled the blood, filled the bottle. And all at once, there was a babble of voices saying, Look, Sahib doctor is giving his own life. Look, Sahib doctor is giving his own life. And that's exactly what Christ did for you and for me on the cross when he shed his crimson blood. He purchased us for himself that he might set us free from the slave market of sin. Or as Charles Wesley put it, he breaks the power of cancel sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the vilest clean. His blood availed for me. We could go on talking about his blood. There's his justifying blood. Romans chapter 5 verse 9. There's his peacemaking blood. Colossians chapter 1 verse 20. There's his sanctifying blood. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 12. There's his overcoming blood. Revelation chapter 12 verse 11. But let me finish by talking about the one that's found here in 1 Peter verse 19. The precious blood of Christ. The Greek word precious is timios. It's derived from a Greek word that means two things. Precious in the sense of something where the cost is beyond human calculation. Its cost is inestimable. It's invaluable. You can't place a value on it. And it's precious in the sense of something that's to be held in high honor. Something that's to be honored and respected and revered. And that's what he says. If you look one more time at our text knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the, here it is, precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Those two definitions, something that is so precious that you can't put a value on it, something that is so precious that you hold in high honor, is what we should do every time we come to the observance of the Lord's table. This is only grape juice, and it reminds us of that precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no salvation apart from his shed blood. There is no salvation apart from his shed blood. You say, okay, preacher, I get what you're saying. So, what does that mean to me? What does this mean to me? Well, first of all, when you leave here in a little while, you should go in peace recognizing that your sins are gone. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ, your sins are gone. They're never going to be remembered against you ever again. They're gone once and for all and forever. And you can walk out of here free without the guilt, without the shame, because Jesus has forgiven you. We can not only leave recognizing that our sins are gone, we can praise God for his shed blood on the cross of Calvary, and every one of us should do that today. And we're going to give you that opportunity in just a few moments to bow your head and say, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for your shed blood. But thirdly, you can come and be washed in that blood today. If you don't know Jesus... You can come and be washed in that blood today. I don't know what your past is. I don't know what you've done. I don't know where you've been. I don't know how bad your life has been. I don't know how low the, the, your life has taken you, but I can tell you this. 
in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is the forgiveness to wash away and take away your sins once and for all and forever. And you can become a child of the living God. We come to this service today with a sense of holiness, with a sense of the preciousness of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to be reminded of what he has done so that we could be called the children of the living God.